Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Mitch Docker and this is Life in the Peloton. The podcast has been brought to you by our friends over at Rafa. Now, Rafa, they're not just about making the best clothing out there. Their purpose is to inspire the world to live by bike. And they do that through many different avenues from the culture at the Rafa Cycling Club rides and the events they host over at their clubhouses all over the world to the stories and the films they create to help spread the word of the beautiful sport of cycling. And that really aligns with us here over at Life in the Peloton, exploring life by bike and the different Pelotons out there. This week's episode, what is it all about? Everesting. You may have heard of it, you may not have. Well, in this episode, we're going to go and explore this idea, which was created by a guy called Annie Van Bergen back in 2014. Put very simply, the idea is to cycle the same elevation as Mount Everest, 8,848 metres. The whole idea of this challenge has changed a lot over the years, but over 200,000 people around the world have achieved it. Some far, some slow, some off-road, some by foot, all different ways. To be completely honest with you, I've never really connected with the idea. I just thought it was a little bit silly. Going up and down a mountain all day long, so boring. But so many people have done it. There must be more to it. Is it that hard? Can I actually do it? These were some of the questions that were bubbling away in my head. So that was it. Not really out of excitement or enthusiasm, but more out of interest. I thought, I have to go and see what it's all about what it feels like to climb Mount Everest, sort of in a roundabout way. But before all that, I thought for both myself and you guys listening, I need to go and talk to the man behind this idea, Andy Van Bergen, find out the origins of how it all started, get some tips and learn a little bit more about this challenge. Now, this attempt made me feel like I was back racing pro again. I got nervous the days before. I started thinking about fueling. I ramped up the carb intakes the days before and I even tried to get my feet up when I could. I was using AG1 when I was racing overseas and I'm still using it now and that's the way I started my Everest attempt because it was such an early start. I left home around 5am and I was already riding at 6am. I just couldn't think about getting a normal breakfast in at that time of day. But having AG1 first thing was easy, fast and simple. It's the perfect way to start the day for me and it gives me a little bit more time and then I start to think about having something to eat. It's more than just greens. It's a comprehensive blend of vitamins and minerals, probiotics and superfood complexes. I feel it gives me this natural boost in energy and also that I have this level start to the day and it sets my metabolism on the right track. It's an all-in-one and like I said, it's part of my routine. I simply get up first thing in the morning, grab the shaker, add some water, a scoop of AG1 and drink it down and that's it. It's not about replacing a meal. It's about adding some extra support to your nutritional balance. It's really my go-to these days and it's something I look forward to when I wake up. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, AG1 is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton. That's drinkag1.com slash life in the peloton and grab yourself one guys, check it out. Now, like I said, this made me feel like I was getting back ready to race again. I don't feel that kind of pressure or anxiety anymore, nor do I want to. So I thought I need to get in the head of someone like-minded. Before going out and attempting this for myself, I also chatted with Lachlan Morton, you all know who he is, to hear his take on it. He had the record for a while, 
So he knows how to do it fast. So I was thinking, can I learn anything from him? There was also another product I used in preparation for the Everest attempt, and that was Pillar. Pillar is a sports micronutrition company started out here in Australia, and they're developing products that intersect between pharmaceutical intervention and sports supplements for athletes. The easiest way to describe it is electrolytes, carbohydrate products. These are the things that are going to get you to the finish line. The role of Pillar Micronutrition is to help you to get to the start line, feeling your best over and over again. I've been using the triple magnesium and not only has it allowed me to notice the difference in the sleep I am getting when I'm taking it in terms of the overall sleep time, but what I notice the most is when I wake up, I feel that much more rested. Looking to the Everest attempt, I was concerned about the quality of sleep I was getting the week before, of course, which the triple magnesium really helped with, but I wanted to make sure I was topped up with the available magnesium for the body and the muscles to help sustain muscle movement and the deliverance of oxygen to the working muscles. A really important role that magnesium plays during exercise and you can imagine during an Everest attempt. It's easy to drink, it tastes nice, and I've been taking it with water in my shaker 30 minutes before bed each night. If you'd like to try Pillar today, head across to pillarperformance.shop and use the code LITP for 15% off your first purchase, or our USA listeners, head across to thefeed.com slash pillar. Guys, get across there and get yourself one. Good sleep, good recovery. It's really that simple with triple magnesium. No tricks about it. There's lots of other stuff there to check out while you're over there. That's pillarperformance.shop. Well, guys, sit back and enjoy this one because first off, we're going to hear from the man who cemented this idea into a real challenge that everyone all over the world could attempt, Andy Van Bergen. Then we're going to hear from the pro who took the record in the early days, Lachlan Morton. And finally, you're going to come on the road with me and experience my very own Everest attempt. All right, Andy, before we get into this, we've got to understand what this is. So I'm going to hit you with it. What is Everesting? Mitch, it's pretty simple. Everesting is basically uh, the activity of climbing the height of Mount Everest. You can do it on foot or you can do it on bike, but basically you're just climbing the height of Mount Everest. So Mount Everest is 8,848 meters, or if you're playing in feet, it's uh, 29,029 feet. And to complete an Everesting, what you need to do is jump on your bike or do a, a run Everesting, and you're going to pick any hill anywhere in the world, and you just have to go up and down that hill until you climb that equivalent height. And there's a couple of super basic rules, but basically you can't sleep, and it has to be in one activity. That's it. You do that. And you've done an Everesting. All right. Well, then tell me about how did this whole idea come about? Like, it's sort of, surely it didn't just come about going, you know, you you went up Mount Everest one time and went, oh, actually, maybe we should do this. How did this idea even come about? I've always loved mountaineering, just kind of oh. the idea of it. Like, massive disclaimer, I will never, ever be a mountaineer because I definitely know too much from reading too much and watching too many videos on it. It's scary as hell. But I think just the the kind of the romance of mountaineering and that idea of kind of planting a flag on a, on a either a new peak or a new route on a peak and being the first has just always really appealed to me. And it's just kind of the way I love sort of losing myself if I'm, you know, wanting to read a book or something like that. But um, I guess if you kind of rewind a little bit, like... Before I ever got into cycling, I was always into creating challenges and the idea of pushing, not not like pushing human boundaries, but just pushing my own mm. capabilities. What am I capable of doing and how can I push harder than that? It's always fascinated me. I just love the idea of taking on challenges in life anywhere where 
I don't know. Like I'm jumping in the deep mm. end of the pool, so to speak. I, you know, I don't know if it's possible and it's just kind of fun fig- figuring it out. Like before I got into cycling, I was, uh, you know, been doing a couple of different things, but I was doing the, these Oxfam 100K walks. Mm. I don't know if you've heard. No, of I haven't. You've got to walk 100Ks. It's all trails, like it's through the hills and, um, you know, gnarly trails. Like it's not, not a nice, like going around a, a sports track or anything like that. And so you do 100Ks and you've got a 48 hour window to do that. So I did, I did one of them. Uh, you do it with a team. And I think, you know, in the end, uh, I did it in like 42 hours or something. Suffered like a dog, <laughs> slept terribly. Uh, but as soon as I finished it, I was thinking, how quick could you do that? And so over the next seven uh, editions of, of this Oxfam Trail Walker, uh, I just go faster and faster to sort of see what was possible. And again, like I'm no trail runner or anything like that. And there's like, actually people who are very good at this sort of thing but you know i got it down to 17 hours which wow. i was quite happy with and that was kind of hellish as well but <laughs> that that idea of sort of pushing pushing the boundaries of what's possible like anyone in my family can tell you they've been dragged along on many adventures <laughs> along the way whether it's going hiking or what, whatever it might be but um when i kind of got into cycling which is you know i don't know 20 years ago or something like that it was kind of similar like i went around and i did all the events that you could possibly do but i sort of left wanting a little bit because it just sort of you know when the next year came around and i was doing those events again for a second time i don't know it just wasn't pushing me like not enough to say i mean you can ride it harder and da 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 like all that sort of stuff but it wasn't it wasn't kind of for my soul it wasn't it wasn't kind of pushing the boundaries wasn't scaring was you maybe do you think it wasn't scary yeah. yeah and it was one of those things i could you know i had enough sort of training that i could just go out and do it the next week mm. Whereas I like the idea of a big chunky goal, something that I'd have to train up mm. for, because this is what I've been doing with Oxfam. You know, basically I was constantly training for the next one. So I was riding with my my uncle and my cousin a fair bit at that time, and so I sort of devised these like let's let's do a big epic ride this year, and it's going to be at the end of the year. We're going to have to train mm. for it in in the cold winter. That's when you know it's you know you've got a good goal if you, if you're getting out of bed and and riding. It's those it's it's like in the back of your mind the whole time. It's like oh. Yeah, I've got it. I've got it. I've just got it. I know what I've got to do. It's 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 sort of a beacon, isn't it? Well, and if you don't, what's going to happen? Your mates are going to call you up and be like, "Where are you? Come on, get out of bed. It's it's Sunday morning. We're riding in the Dandenongs or whatever it might be." So we'd, we'd sort of um, work up to, toward these big goals. And you know, for example, one of them was um, there's this thing called Seven Peaks, which uh, Victorian High Country have. It's seven alpine resorts, and you, you had had a passport, and you could. Over the space of summer, go and tick off each of the seven peaks, you know, Hotham and Bulbuller and Buller and all of those. And so we sort of thought, well, how quick could it be done? And we heard of someone who had done seven peaks in seven days. Well, oh, that's pretty cool. Like maybe we could do it a bit quicker. Mm-hmm. And we ran some logistics and ended up doing it in three days, which was really good. And uh, of course, the next year we thought, well, there's some efficiencies that we can be made. So we ended up doing all seven in under 36 hours. Wow. At the end. And, there's a shitload of driving in between as well. Like the clock starts from when it be, I think we did 700 Ks of driving <laughs> in amongst that as well. Um, so that was lots of fun. But, uh, you know, then each year kind of like this concept of a big epic ride gained a bit of notoriety within the little circles that we're riding in and we'd have a few extra people. And over the years, it got to the point where there was like, say, a dozen people coming out to um, the high country and we'd do a we'd always want to do a 300k day so we did a 300k day in the hills with over 5,000 meters of climbing and that was sort of like a big thing that we we pushed toward and kind of the the climax of that was um a big ride that we'd planned we'd ridden the three peaks loop yep um which is before, for anyone who doesn't know 
Oh yeah, so it's uh, it's in the high country of Victoria. It's three peaks, obviously three three big peaks. It takes on uh, Toowoomba Gap, Mount Hotham, and then the back of Falls, which is quite brutal. And the back of Falls was always traditionally unsealed. They just sealed it. Mm. All of a sudden, it made this beautiful loop, 230Ks. I think it's about 4,500 metres of climbing. All of a sudden, there's this loop that you could do that you couldn't previously, really, before the world of gravel. <laughs> um, so we, we, we'd gone out and, and done that uh, as soon as we heard that it, it had opened up. And it was, it was a really fun day out. Like, we had, it, had a blast. But then a few weeks later, Bicycle Network, who I love, uh, came out and said, we're, we're having the hardest event ever. And, you know, you'll never be able to complete this without support. And we're like, we've done that. We just, <laughs> we just went and did that. So we thought it might be funny to not only do three peaks, but then turn around at the end and ride the whole thing in reverse. Um, six peaks. Yeah, six peaks. And we sort of looked at, looked at the totals and it was like 450Ks or maybe a little bit more. And I think it was like 9,000 metres of climbing. Wow. And I, I kind of had this like rounding issue in my head where it, like that just doesn't really do it for me. So I was like, no, nah, we're going to do 500Ks and 10,000 vertical meters. Like That's that insane. So yeah, we went and did it. It was lots of fun. We did it for a uh, for a charity that was raising money for, for lung cancer and everything and tough day out on the bike, but super fun. Where'd you, so get, the extra, where'd you get the extra climbing oh, meters from? <laughs> Mount Buffalo. All oh, right. So, so you just rode out to another peak, Mount Buffalo, not too far away either. Yeah, so we've just done a lazy double three peaks and then and then just had to finish at the top of Buffalo. <laughs> and then the very funny thing, we all agreed that all of our garments had to we had to we had to all see the number pop oh, up. Oh no. So so mine had popped up like half an hour before, like, yep, yeah, you could you hit ten thousand meters. But my cousins just kept on going. So we were doing laps up to Dingo <laughs> Dell. It was just the worst at like, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning or something like that. But um, yeah, anyway, we, we did this ride. It was lots of fun. And today it's kind of partly because of Everesting, partly because of ultra cycling. It's just those sorts of rides are becoming normalized. And you hear about it, you're like, oh, that's cool. But sort of of the day, it was uh, it was definitely talked about. How many years ago were we talking? This was, well, I'm always shady on, on um, years, but I think it was like, I'm going to say 20, probably 2011, 2012, something like that. And... It, there was a lot of chatter like in the cycling community about this and you know Andy White who was a bit of a like oh Andy White's you know mentioned it and uh you know was on was on the radio and things like that so um after that we got contacted by a whole bunch of people saying hey whatever you, whatever this epic is that you're doing the next year we want to we want to be part of it just to rewind a little bit when I heard you say and it was so much fun the 500k 10,000 meters of altitude and looping around the top what was the fun bit about it I think again the idea that we just weren't sure whether it was possible and you're riding with mates mm. and the good thing is when you're riding with mates everyone's going through different things at different times so you might be feeling on top of the world and then later on you're the one that needs to, you're sitting on the back you just kind of need to sit in and get dragged around a little bit just like obviously endorphin has a big part to play it in mm. but um, the fact that we're doing something so tough, um, you know, that we'd had to train for for so long did make it kind of enjoyable. It's funny now that I reflect on it, it, it is probably definitely that type two fun, maybe not so fun at the time, but After. fun on reflection. But I mean, I've been in dark places plenty of times on the bike over the years. And I don't think I was ever like depths of despair with this one. It was, uh, you know, we got cold at stages and, and uh, you know, got wet at stages and then it was boiling hot being bright as well. But there was never any moment where it was horrid. Then there was another big one uh, the year after, um, which got even more notoriety. And then it kind of got to the point where um, after one of the epics, I had like 
over 100 people. I think it was about 120 people from all over the world saying, right, whatever this next epic is, I'm in. Well, fly over to Melbourne. The problem is like, we're not talking about an event with gantries and um, hydration and nutrition sponsors and, and all that palaver. Like it is literally my parents baking muesli <laughs> slice and my sister handing out bananas on the side of the road, my wife doing water top ups and stuff. Like it, it was very grassroots mm-hmm. and low key intentionally. So because it was just about, it was more about the ride. And so unfortunately, like 120 people is never going to work. I didn't want this to be a big mm-hmm. event or anything like that. So what happened was like, I'd read this account kind of in parallel um, at, at sort of a similar sort of time from this guy called George Mallory. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, the grandson of the George Mallory who attempted to to climb Mount Everest, um, you know, many, many years ago. He was training to climb Mount Everest, like on foot mm. as, as a mountaineer. And as part of that training, and this is kind of in the 90s that he was doing this, uh, very early 90s. So as part of that training, he was doing some endurance training and was on the bike and he was climbing lots of repeats of Mount Donabuen in, uh, in Melbourne and sort of decided that a neat little kind of training goal mm would be to see if, if it was possible to climb the, the equivalent height of Mount Everest on a bike. Wow. Obviously, it wasn't called Everesting. The thing didn't exist back then. But um, so he kind of got that idea and he wrote up an account of it. I think it was like 10 years later, he eventually wrote up an, an account and it was on cycling tips, read about it, and it just stuck in my mind in the same way that I hope Everesting, when people hear about it, kind of burns in the back <laughs> of their mind. They're like, oh, this is this sounds horrible, but like you're sort of just ticking away there you know we we loved climbing in the hills more than anything and here was this thing that was just so bonkers and so above anything that was sort of considered it all kind of came together for me so i sort of realized okay well potentially what we could do is this could be the thing where instead of having 120 people in our backyard mm-hmm. you go and do your this epic but in your own your own space and you know i'll set some parameters and those parameters are fairly simple like you climb the height of Mount Everest, you can't sleep. It's got to be in one activity to sort of replicate what George did those 20 years ago. Yeah, people basically told me to, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but you can imagine what they, what they told me. They told me to get fucked. Um, but um, that, that was basically where the, the concept of Everesting came from. This idea that, okay, well, people can replicate this wherever they yeah. are in the world. You can, pick, you can pick any hill and it might be a big hill. Like my first run was on Mount Buller, um, you know, 1,000 metres of climbing or... It could be on a suburban street where you get 30 meters of elevation gain. You're just going to have to do it like a couple of hundred times. And just where it suits you. And like, I think, you know, just listen to what you're just saying then. And and what George did, I guess, I don't know. He was just doing it as a pure challenge, I guess. And, you know, no one really knew about it. Why did he feel like he had to write this sort of, you know, account of it? Well, tell me now why... Do people actually do it? You know, who are the types of people who are going out and doing Everesting now? Because you, you're the you're the founder, I guess. You're the someone who who took this idea that did exist, but you you're the one who put these sort of parameters around it and created it into something that people would because everyone needs something to they need to know the restrictions and have rules and boundaries to make it something you can grab hold of and, and a challenge to be achievable. So I think that's the nice thing about you is that you this idea did exist with George, but it was loose, you know, who knows really what it is. You're like, I'm going to put all this stuff in one place where people can access it, see it, you know. But then who are the types of people doing this this idea? There's been some ebbs and flows over the years. So this was 2014 when it first launched. So it's been going nearly 10 years. I think for the first, like pretty much until pre-pandemic, people that were doing it were people that I guess were sort of like us, that they were 
you know, hill climbing aficionados. They were not necessarily racing or maybe they were racing, but um, it wasn't about being the fastest or anything like that. It was just about this idea of a great personal challenge. Like, I love the fact that there's no massive fanfare mm. around this. I mean, you get to kind of wear the badge, so to speak, to say, yeah, I've done it. I've done an Everesting, but there's no you know, giant finish line sort of, sort of, uh, you know, that you might get from racing or anything. You kind of, you're really doing this for yourself. Kind of coming into the pandemic, obviously like the, the concept of everything had been growing and it was entering the cycling uh, vernacular. Like I remember reading about uh, Thomas de Ghent mm. in the Tour de France. I think it was like 2019 Tour de France. He was writing a column and he was talking about everything and the fact that it was getting discussed in the peloton because uh, who was it? Camworth and Richie Port were going to go do an Everesting. Mm. Um, you know, later on, later on that year, and Jens Voigt had already done one in the snow because he's Jens Voigt. <laughs> so it's sort of it was already known, but but as we kind of came into the pandemic, I think uh, pro riders were obviously looking for something to do with their time, and it was uh, Phil Garment actually oh. who kind of started to popularise the idea of racing it. He was like, well. There's no real record. I wonder how fast it could be done. Kind of a really interesting concept. Obviously, he's doing he was doing his hill climbing project at the same time as well. He broke the eight hour record, mm. which, you know, to be honest, the record was never, you know, it had sort of existed for about five years. No one had really had a proper crack. But the moment he did, all of a sudden, all these pros were like, oh, this is something fun. We've got, everyone you know, everyone wanted so, to take ga- Gaiman down. They're like, oh, yeah. Phil's got it. Like, oh, I reckon yeah, I Phil's can get it. it. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think he had it for less than a week. <laughs> Keegan Swenson um, went and did it, did it and Phil was pretty shitty about it and had another couple of attempts at it. It was really, really cool. And then um, obviously it got passed around a little bit. You know, Lockie Morton had unfortunately two <laughs> cracks at it. One of them was uh, was to do with me a little bit. So he, he went out and set a new record prior to, like we were kind of checking out the segments and everything to make sure that like the elevation was legit and using all sorts of, um, you know, as much technology as we could to, to kind of get it as accurate as possible. But it turns out that the first record that he set wasn't legitimate because he didn't quite climb the equivalent height. It turns out that um, the information on that segment was a little bit wonky oh, no. and so yeah he his i think his response when i let him know was well that's shit and i think those words will haunt me for life <laughs> it was if, if you've ever got a tale of mortification that was mine it was one of the most mortifying moments of my life where pro rider lucky morton i had to knock him back for it from this everesting thing but to his credit he went out the next weekend and did it and set another record and it was like seven and a half hours uh, who was next? Conchor, Alberto Conchor wanted to do one and he broke the record by like two minutes or something. Oh, yeah. Nathan Earl did one down in Tassie, uh, Sam Gardner. But then m- more recently, uh, Ronan McLaughlin mm. set the, the record. So Ronan uh, is, uh, you had been racing and doing a lot of hill climbing and stuff like that. And he absolutely annihilated the record uh, on his second attempt, uh, second record setting attempt. He ended up doing it in six hours and 40 minutes, which is just. Like do some calculation on the van on eight thousand eight hundred and forty eight meters, and it also you've got to remember you're coming down yeah. the hill as well. So um, where and the t- the time's still ticking, but you're not getting any further towards your goal while, while you're descending. So um, and the turns and the turnarounds, you know, like you, I guess you're underestimating that the, the complete slowdown, the the flipping the yeah. turn at, at a witch's cap yeah. that adds up. Yeah, he had um, some really excellent advice from all over the place, and uh, you know, including Josh Portner from Silco who. 
uh, has obviously done a lot of, um, I think he does a lot of time trialing optimization for you know, uh, different, different teams and things like that. Um, so yeah, it gets pretty serious. But but anyway, like long way to answer your question is that a couple of different archetypes. Mm. So there are people that are going for the fast one, but I think now that the pros have done their thing and and the Everesting record's pretty solid now. Uh, Emma Pooley also uh, set the women's record and now it's Illy Gardner. But um, now that those records are kind of set, I think we're sort of back to kind of the original sort of archetype mm. and that, that's people that are doing it for themselves. And it might be to, you know, set a personal goal or it might be to raise money for charity. Like there's literally been millions of dollars that have been raised mm. for charity over the years, which is which is quite cool. Or it might be because they're overcoming some sort of adversity or or like it might be for mental health or all sorts of reasons. Mm. So I, th- I think the thing that's really cool about it is you can't really say this is why someone does an Everesting because it is literally different for every single person and it motivates them in a different way. Uh, and that's what, what's kind of neat about it. Okay, so you're going to hear me referring to my Wahoo bike computer in this episode, especially as I'm climbing my way to the top of Mount Everest. The Wahoo Element Roam GPS bike computer was so important as I looped 42 times around Mount Macedon. It was my point of reference, my elevation calculator, my guide. One of its greatest features is the summit climbing feature. It's really amazing because it uses the Wahoo Element's pre-installed maps and elevation data to calculate elevation profile and detect the upcoming climbs. Once the climb is detected, the computer will alert you as you're approaching the climb, show you the climb's profile, and then the climbs that come after you've crested it. It also counts down the climb live as you're tackling it. It's sort of good and sort of bad at the same time. And for that reason, it was perfect for me each lap as I tackled the Everesting. I could see the profile and I knew how long it was going to take me to get to the top of the climb each lap. But also, if you're navigating through your next gravel event or even better when you're out exploring on your next ride or bikepacking adventure, you're no longer in the dark. Turning a corner and seeing this surprise climb in front of you and wondering how long is it going to be until I get to the top. It's a really classy bike computer with many other great features and by far the longest battery life I've experienced. 12 hours doing an Everesting and I still had 50% of the battery left. Guys, let's get back to the episode. I have maybe caught the bug because look, I have to be completely honest with you. I thought this idea was a bit dumb when I heard about it. I was just like, why would you do that? Why would you waste your time going up and down on a climb? I'm not even a climber. And I'm not going to get anywhere near the record. If I can't get near the record of something like that, why would I put myself through that much pain? But I think in doing a little bit of research, and another great place to to find out a bit more information about Everesting is also your your website, but also the book that you've you've had written by Matt Deneef, which is what I got. I got that given to me. And I also, again, thought, well, I'm never going to read that. And all of a sudden, I found myself flicking through there and getting more interested in it because I guess I started to see the angle of why I would want to do it. I would want to do it as, as a personal challenge on a on a home road. That is what I think I'm going to undertake. That's why I'm sort of talking to you. I think we need to go through some of the guidelines now and the, the little steps to help me set it up. I guess, what are the three steps you need to do before you, you start thinking about doing an Everesting? The very first point is coming to terms and accepting the fact that you know, you're thinking about an Everesting. But the first thing you want to do is kind of Look at, look at the segment that you're going to do or look at the hill. And there's a couple of different benefits that, that you can look at. Okay. So you might like a long climb. So, so for example, I mentioned that the very first Everesting I did was on Mount Buller. 
So a thousand meters climb, you're climbing, you know, for, for an hour or whatever it is, and you've got a nice long descent. Uh, the, the only problem is you, you then are descending for quite some time. So your legs are cooling down and then you've got to kind of warm up mm. at, at the base of the climb again. Whereas I've done suburban ones with 200 laps and, you know, on quite a steep hill. And I found like the active recovery was really good. Like I was never really cooling down. I was just warm the whole time. And it was a, it was a much faster time. Um, despite the fact that it was a lot steeper. Do you think well. mentally too that you know like the effort that you're doing is only a couple of minutes away from being over? Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, it's probably a good point because I think, I mean, I can't remember what the what the length is, but it's maybe like two minute segments mm-hmm. or something or, or three minute segments. It's, you know, it's pretty short. So like you said, it is over very, very quickly. Also like the fact um, of, of being able to kind of chunk down the climb a little bit. So if you've got a a short, um, short hill. You, you're just constantly putting an X next to a lap, Bang, and there's another one kind of, done. Yeah, exactly. And then you have ticked off a row, or you, you know, whatever it might be. It, it just, it seemed to be that I was like constantly. Uh, I felt like I was constantly moving forward with that one. So yeah, hill selection is really important. And so you're looking at the distance, the gradient. Um, it's sort of counterintuitive because if you go out for a ride on the weekend in the hills, you're sort of hitting 10% climbs or 8% climbs, and probably furrowing your brow just thinking this this is the worst but really it seems to be kind of around that sort of six to eight percent i think is a sweet spot Mm. if you can handle a steeper climb it's actually better especially with the gearing Um, we've got now definitely yeah definitely with the gearing that we've got and descending is less of an issue uh Mm. you know you've got everyone's got disc brakes these days as well it's not necessarily harder when it gets steeper if that makes sense like you're also going to be like distance wise less you know you, when you're getting to 300 k's sure half of it's downhill but it's that's a long day in the bike whereas if you're doing around six to eight percent tends to be closer to that 200 k mark mm. half of it's downhill it's 100 k right man it's easy 100 <laughs> k climb what are some of the rules then that i need to watch out for because like you said it's 8848 meters it's one attempt what exactly no sleep but you're allowed to have breaks yeah that, and this is probably the one where it, people get a little bit tripped up by it because um yeah so no sleep that's pretty obvious but you can break as long as you need to so stop have dinner get a massage go get a pizza or a beer or something maybe you get the beer afterwards but you know stop and, and take your time with it the clock's ticking the whole time though so we take a total elapsed time so like anyone that's done any sort of ultra rides you know that the devil is actually in the brakes mm. it's not in the ride time you know you've got to have the brakes when you have the brakes but pop the food in your pocket and eat it on the way or eat it on the descents or get someone to top up your biddens, um, especially if you've got a got a, um, a base camp happening as well. But yeah, like if you can shorten the brakes, that's going to make things a little bit more enjoyable. The, I think the key is to get off the hill as soon as you can. Mm. You don't want to spend any more extra hours there that you don't have to. Right? Yeah. And, and it can blow out really quickly, particularly in the second half. What about no loops? You know, like initially I thought, oh, great, I can create a great little loop and, you know, just loop up this climb and a nice different descent. That's not the key, is it? Yeah, that's right. So you need to do repeats of a, of a segment. So like if I'm using Mount Buller, for example, you've got to go up and back and up and back. Or if you're doing a suburban hill, it's the same road up up and down. And kind of the, um, the reasoning behind that is because similar to mountaineering, we like the idea of there being kind of one route mm. to the peak that you take. And then the other thing with loops is sometimes there can be some, um, you, you know, get some additional benefits if there's like an easier descent, uh, for example. Mm. So, you know, there's plenty of climbs that, that I can think of um, that I've always been interested in Everesting, but descending that road then also makes it a little bit more of a challenge, um, either because it's steep or it's got twists and turns and things. And really that's got to be part of the part of the challenge if you're choosing that that route 
it's hard. It can sometimes be just as hard going down as it is up. You can also go further on now. I saw that some people are doing double Everest things, which I don't know, triple Everest things. Like, you know, and even like what you, I, I read in there too, you're so close to 10,000. And if you want to just be clean and neat and stuff, you know, just round it off 10,000, just a mere sort of, you know, whatever, 1,200 metres more. Yeah, I've done a bunch now myself and I feel every single time I'm out there on the hill, it's definitely in the back of my mind thinking, because how often do you get the opportunity to climb 10,000 metres in a day? Like you just don't, right? So it's definitely on the back of your mind. Usually when you get to 8848, you're like, yeah, forget that. I'm just <laughs> I'm just going to finish. But, um, you know, pushing on pushing on's really good. But like you said, you know, people who do, I can't relate to this, but double Everesting or triple you know, it just keeps on going up. I think the record is six at the moment. So, so with with um, obviously safety, yeah, safety is quite important. So, if you're doing a double Everesting or more, uh, there is a two hour sleep allowance for every subsequent Everesting. So, if you do a double, um, you're doing two times eight eight four eight, but you've also got a four hour sleep allowance. Uh, sorry, two hour sleep allowance. You do a triple, you got four hours, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, a, a nice big four-hour sleep, great. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I can't understand it myself, but I know it's a, an, an ultra-cycling technique where they can, um, you know, do micro-naps of 15 minutes and kind of spread that out. I don't, I don't understand it. Like, it's just insane. But, but again, the thing I really love about this is the whole idea is it's just extending that mm. that concept of pushing your own ability level in it. It's not about necessarily pushing the limit of human endurance or anything, but, you know, to be fair, like some of these riders literally are doing that. But really the reason why people are doing that is because they're just pushing that concept of, of what's possible for them. Mm. I just love it. Tell me about then now, now I'm getting my head around at preparation. What do I need to do, you know? bike types you know like you've mentioned base camp a few times is there a good spot to put base camp is that at the as a, at the turn point or is that halfway down i don't know give me some advice here what do i need to how do, how can i prepare best for this so a base camp's really important and also having some moral support along the way as well so getting some cycling buddies or whatever to kind of cheer you on Ride a lap? Is it, do you think it's good to have oh, people right. ride a lap because it could be annoying you know suddenly they come in fresh and they're half wheeling you up the climb yeah, yeah, that, that you've got to pick your mates, I guess. <laughs> but um, but I think like the psychological boost um of, of having someone along, um, you know, if, if if you're starting to fade later on, we, we, you know, it's you, you just can't underestimate that. Uh, in terms of base camp, first of all, let me talk about like the food that you have there as well. And again, like you know, you you've you've probably spent your life eating gels and and um, you know, like proper proper nutritionally uh, spot on food. But I actually think. You've got to go for real food and like have some rewards in there, like whether it's a slice of pizza or some chips or whatever it is. Endurance riders will tell you this as well. Your body kind of tells you what you need and invariably a lot of the time it's just salts, but to have a bit of a reward there for you, um, you know, whether it's a donut or, or whatever it might be is, is pretty important. In terms of like whether it's at the top or the bottom or in the middle, you can use different strategies. So I've, I've done before where I've left everything at the top because it just means that- I've got to get up there. The car, I have to get up. And then we usually when you're up, it's like, I'll just roll down again. <laughs> Once you start rolling down, you kind of committed, right? Because the key, the keys are at the top. <laughs> Sometimes having it at the bottom means that when you've finished, you know, your little break, it's a little bit harder to get going yeah. again. Well, tell me about then. What about a schedule? Or you know, I think visually, I like having the idea of literally marking it off. And I thought maybe it's putting a rock into a bucket or whatever it is. You know, literally crossing it off on a sheet. Or because I look, I'm envisioning. 
having people out there. But, you know, I don't know if I could really have someone sort of sit by the side of the road for 10 hours with me. Ultimately, I need to be sort of self-sufficient in a way and be able to market off myself. And there's something in that, being able to just sort of cross through it on the calendar in a way. Is that sort of help you as well? I think if you're talking about that, then you should definitely, definitely do that. I I really relate to that as well. I I need to kind of chunk it down. If you you start rolling and then you're like, cool, I've only got like 8,847 meters to go, you do your head in. Um, You you really need to just be kind of picking off micro goals the whole way. So I like to have a bit of a, you know, like like you said, a bit of a matrix that you can Mm. cross off. And I try to set it up in a way that, you know, there's going to be multiple rows as well. So I'm like just working toward the end of that row. And then you might be having like other little goals in there as well. So every thousand meters is another little goal and you can kind of get a little bit creative with it. And it's a false economy because like really you're just tricking yourself psychologically. You you have to ride the same amount regardless, but it just makes you feel like you're always kind of progressing with it and you've got something to tick off. Cool. At the end of the lap, I've hit 3000 meters. Mm -hmm. At the end of the lap, I'm, you know, halfway through it. At the end of the lap, I've ticked off a row. What about now um, things that I should probably be aware of, you know, the general sort of, excuse my language, fuck ups where people sort of just misinterpret things. Having a bit of an idea of how much you need to do. So don't be like me. So the very first one that I did on Mount Buller, I just, I kind of maybe was a little bit, I was too busy organizing everybody else. I hadn't kind of checked out the elevation perfectly myself. And as I got to the top of the first lap, I did some quick calculations and realized I was not going to have to do nine laps. I was going to have to do 10 or instead of eight, it was nine or whatever it was, but I had to do an extra lap. Mm-hmm. So don't, don't do that. <laughs> like fig- figure it out beforehand. And, um, yeah. But like I've I went and rode my climb yesterday just to double check and it was actually on my um, Wahoo. I lapped it and I got it back and when I mapped it on Strava, I think it was two hundred and nineteen meters ele- elevation. But then when I did, it was two hundred and nine. So now I'm sort of wondering what, what what's correct. So I guess you probably got to ride a bit more on the day to make sure. Yeah, always do a bit of extra. Don't don't finish at eight eight four eight. Like build a little bit of a buffer in there. Uh, and then when it comes to calculating the the elevation for the segment, it helps to actually look at, you know, look at the segment that's on Strava and try and see if that feels like it's instinctively right. Like if it looks like it's a bit wonky, um, chances are that it was recorded on an old iPhone back in 2015 or something like that. And the uh, the elevation isn't, isn't correct. Um, you know, your, your computer today is probably going to be pretty close to accurate. So if you can build up uh, a little bit of a, a feeling for how accurate that that segment is by riding it a couple of times you you'll get a feel for whether what, what the actual number is uh, whether it's a real number or not but if, if you're not sure you can also it's pretty easy to get topo uh, topographic maps these days online mm. um you don't need to pay for them there's heaps of free ones and you can just do a bit of sense checking like check on the on the topo rings just to see if you're, you're roughly correct or not the other thing I'll, I'll tend to do is go through and have a look at the leaderboard and just go through a couple of different riders and just see, mm. uh, you know, if you're, if you're really unsure about the elevation. But most of the, most of the time, like the, um, you know, Strava's gen- generally pretty good these days with feeding you the right the right info. Just don't do the uh, elevation correction at the end. That's always going to inflate things a little bit. Really? Yeah. It's it's always worth a couple of 
extra hundred or maybe a thousand. Especially especially when you've done eight eight four eight meters, like yeah, it tends to overinflate things a little bit. <laughs> all right, all right, I'll be ready for that. What should I expect then going into this? I hear you talking about the death zone. You know, after seven thousand meters, what are some things I should be mentally prepared for, or even physically? You know, I'm not really training as much as I used to these days. So I think you particularly are going to be able. You, you the physical part of it you're going to get through because you've had much tougher days on the bike and you'll be able to draw on that experience to just kind of shut shut off certain things and just keep on going through it plus you're going to be there with some mates having some laughs it's a good time as long as there's not too many people half willing you should be, <laughs> should be right there um you know what, what you need to watch out for is the psychology like you know how, how you're kind of feeling mentally on the day that's that's like an equal part of the challenge and for some people it's a bigger part of the challenge you know, like you said, there's that there's that death zone. So, when you're mountaineering, the death zone's above eight thousand meters. It's where the oxygen gets a bit thin. The death zone for for Everesting is kind of the doldrums. It's I reckon it's around six and a half to seven and a half thousand meters. You sort of you've been going at it for quite a quite a while, like a mm. fair chunk of the day at that stage, and it feels like you're slowing down, and it feels like you're just still so far away because you know at six and a half thousand meters, you've still got a couple of grand worth of cr- climbing to do, which on any normal day is a big day in the saddle yeah. and that's coming after after hours and hours of climbing so i think if you can kind of get through that component and then as soon as you're you know the lights at the end of the tunnel for different people at different points but i, I sort of feel like when you're at eight thousand, it's in the bag got under a thousand to go you're home and hosed <laughs> so just just aim to get to that eight thousand meter point and you'll be you'll be sweet I'm sure there's a million of them, but just to finish off, what is one of the most beautiful stories you've had coming out of Everesting over over these years um, that you've sort of experienced or heard about yourself? Like you said, there's, there's many, many of them, but um, I think for, for me, one that really stands out is a writer by the name of Charlie Mandel. Uh, so Charlie was going through hormone replacement therapy at, uh, at that particular time. And so she was like... Um, you know, weak and and mentally, uh, you know, strained and things like that. Uh, she comes from like this fixie culture, and so she decided to do a track bike, a brakeless track bike, Everesting uh, in the states. Absolutely incredible. Talk about like the hardest type of Everesting you can imagine. Both going up and, down. and downhill as well, because like no brakes. You got to right? use your you legs to, to slow down. That's the only time you get to rest normally. I reckon I'll ride a fixie myself. I reckon my quads would have popped like. <laughs> you know on lap one or whatever but yeah she went and did it but like i said you know while going through like some pretty pretty uh severe hormone therapy replacement as well so for me that's the one that just sticks out in my mind i, I just love that that arresting so much and uh I, you can check out a video of that if you just uh search for charlie mandel i think it's called like cycling through a hormone headwind was the name of the video it's it's really really good well andy i think i'm starting to feel a little bit more prepared thank you very much uh, how how better can i be prepared than talking to the master himself the founder of everesting so mate thank you very much for coming on today thanks for having me on i really appreciate it best of luck with that everesting and remember half of it's upstairs mate, you might have to pop out for a cheeky beer and uh cheer me on or have a laugh at me suffering in, in the last few Definitely. meters cheers All right, Lockie, mate, Everesting. Why did you want to do an Everesting in the beginning? I've got to ask you that question because I actually think the whole idea was a little bit dumb. You know, why did you go and do it? To be honest, I actually didn't want to do one either. Um, it was during <laughs> it was during the lockdown, um, like COVID lockdown. 
there wasn't any racing going on. And I was kind of looking for different things I could go and do challenges, you know, safely from home. And the team were like, kind of like, oh, sweet. Like you can still do things when, you know, there's not much going on. Mm. JV like sent me a message and was like, oh, you're going to have a crack at the Everest. So I was kind of like, well, I guess, I guess I'm having a crack at the Everest. I'd heard about it a bit over that period because obviously there was like a buzz of people going for like a record. But before that, there was a local guy, Jason English, when I was younger, who was doing Everest's like ages ago. Mm. And I remember doing them on a hill and I was just like, what the hell? Like, and he would use a mountain bike so he could have small gears. And I had no interest in it at that point as a kid. And then, yeah, just kind of like that came out of that boredom, I guess, that lockdown, you know, was looking for something competitive to do. Like when you think about it, like you were talking about Jason English and it's what I've found out is that when people originally did it, it was just about the challenge. It was about just achieving it. And, you know, times were sort of 24 hours or 30 hours or, you know, around that sort of 20-hour period. I'm assuming yeah. Jason was somewhere in the vicinity of that. I don't know exactly. But you guys, when the pros started doing it and you held the record for a while, you cut it in half more or less um, when you went for it. Was it about setting the record initially? That was the whole purpose of it? Or did you have your mind around, can I actually do it? You know, it was entirely about setting the record. Um, and it was very much like the opposite of the way I would normally go about doing it. You know, normally like a challenge like that, I'm trying to find something that I'm not sure, like not 100% sure you can do, you know, like that kind of thing. But I was pretty sure I could do it in terms of just like complete and Everest thing. Like then it was about, all right, can I like break the record? Which definitely I think made it a different experience. And to be honest, like I never want to do one again. It was like exactly as I thought it would be. It kind of became this thing that once like the team I was doing it, they started to like buy into it more <laughs> in terms of like, mm. and then I was like, all right, I got to do it quickly before this gets like, out of hand. <laughs> so like I'd been thinking about it for like a week and then found a hill and then like I was at, like in, the, I remember like the afternoon before I was just like having a beer, like swimming in the pool and dad came home and I was like, should we just go do this thing tomorrow? Like, what are you up to? Dad was like, oh yeah, it was so then like that was it and so in that way it was cool it was kind of like going to a junior race like we just filled an esky you couldn't really interact with anyone else at that stage so we didn't make it like a big thing and then like just went went down to the hill and just like did it tell me about your experience of your whole process because you know from what i understand it was actually two attempts um tell me about the day the day of you know those two days um and what sort of happened there with those two um attempts yeah, well, so, like, before I had it, Keegan had it, Keegan Swenson, who, like, at that point in time, I didn't really know him. I was just like, oh, yeah, this guy's, like, a good mountain biker. I was like, easy, I'll go, I'll go snag that. <laughs> and turns, turns out he's the perfect effort for him, right? But, yeah, anyway, I think I want to say the hill was uh, – I can't remember exactly how many kilometres, but it was roughly a 10 or 12-minute lap, I think. I think I had to do 40 laps or something. So the first time I just used an existing segment that was there, right? Um, it was on the hill because I'm not like a cross driver. I didn't know how to make a, a new segment. Did, did this this record. And like like I said, the effort was exactly like I thought it would be. Like for three hours, you kind of cruise through it. It's like fresh, like early in the morning. And I was just like, oh, all right, I'll do this. And the way I went about it was I was like, I need to get a buffer early just to like be – mentally positive so i just like ripped it you know for like an hour <laughs> like oh yes yeah, i got like i got three minutes buffer now whatever 
then was just kind of like, hold on, hold on. And then the last two hours were pretty horrible because you do, you're working so much harder to go exactly the same speed or slower, you know, and you can just see it every lap, you know, like the first time, whatever, it takes you nine minutes to climb the hill and you're like, all right, this is where I need to be. You know how that is, like when you're fresh and whatever. Like I want to say I had to hold on the hill just over 300 watts or something, right? After three hours of that, it's like it starts to get pretty toasty, you know, until, <laughs> until by the last hour you just go like as hard as you can every lap and you know like exactly how many times you've got to do it again, you know, and, there's, and you know how hard you've got to ride and it's going to get harder each lap. So mentally it's just so difficult that last part um to just oh, like no. get, i had quite a good gap so i wasn't like stressed it was more just like all right i just can't let the wheels fall off anyway did it was like sweet that's done and I, i'd like because we were up in that area i'd like book this cabin like out in the middle of nowhere with rage yeah with no no reception or anything and i was like sweet let's just like go hang out here for a few days and then like when i finally got back in reception there's all this shit on cycling news like this this record doesn't count and like because there was no other news at that time it was actually like something you know it's just like ah oh, damn it not because i was devastated to lose the record but i knew i I had to do it again now because I was like, ah, people think I've like cheated this or like, you know, there was some glitch in the segment. I don't know. Like, cause it record, someone had made the, the segment recorded off their computer GPS and their GPS wasn't exactly accurate. And then someone got onto like these crazy topo maps that you can get onto and worked out like, oh, I was this many meters short. It annoyed me more. Cause I was like, oh, I had time to just do another lap. But like, anyway, I had to make a new segment and it was like, I want to say it was within the week because then it was just eating at me because I knew how hard it was. I was like, the longer I put this off, the worse it's going to be, you know? So I just did the same thing. Got up one morning and was like, all right, today's the day. Let's go. Then to, I, I, to do the same hill again was, Ooh. yeah, it was it was pretty horrific Like because I knew exactly what was coming. I'd done it so many times. I could do that descent like with my eyes closed. Essentially just lived out the exact same day I'd had it was literally like the only hill that would work in the area, you know? Right. So like I made the segment slightly longer each end um, just to like con- double confirm I got the record, right. even though it made it like less efficient, <laughs> you know? It's just like, all right, let's just make this <laughs> thing fun. Yeah, but then people had heard that I was doing it. And then so over the day, like this crowd kind of formed. Which it was during lockdown, so you hadn't seen many people, you know? And then mm. like... Halfway, like, I want to say halfway through, this cop showed up and I'm like, oh, no. Like, I was coming up the hill and could see a cop car. I was like, oh, damn it, they're going to shut this thing down. And then, like, but he was just like a bike fan. <laughs> he was like, out to, <laughs> you know. And, like, the thing that made it for me is, like, it, it made my dad so excited, you know. Like, it was just, mm. like, he was standing there giving me bottles every lap and like, you know, with his stopwatch and like trying to run the maths in his head, even though I knew exactly what I had to do. But like in that regard, I think that's what I enjoyed the most about it. Give me some little tidbits now. Any tips you can pass on to me? It sounds like you just spoke about a couple of things. And, and ironically, the, the the segment I'm thinking about tackling is a, a 3K segment 
it's straight. It sounds like about the same for you. It's about 13K for me riding really slow. I rode it the other day. Uh, 13 minutes, sorry, not 13K. Yeah. 13 minutes riding it really slow. It's pretty straight. It's pretty steep. Averages 8%. You know, there's bits that go up to 15 and there's a bit that flattens off, you know. So I sort of thought, I, I, I don't know, I'd heard this around, you know, you got to turn around and be able to just sort of get up to speed really quickly. They're the things that I've sort of taken away from the course. Yeah. I'm hoping you have people out there as well. So that really helped having people cheer you on. I didn't know if that was going to work negatively if I was suffering. Tell me some other little tips that you've learned and if you were going to do it again, what you'd want to have out there. It definitely helped. I marked the spot. I put some tape on the road just so like, because if you're really ripping down the hill, a million times like it's very easy to just like tune out for a second and then overshoot it massively so definitely did a few times but it, it helped to like negate that a bit you know it's probably contrary to what a lot of people would say but i was glad i started hard because i think in that kind of thing no matter what that back end is difficult like mentally it's going to be difficult because essentially you hit a halfway and then like trying to wrap your head around how you're going to do that whole thing again is difficult mm. no matter what. Um, and your legs are going to be toasted going fast or slow, I think. And and I, I think if, you, if you're kind of in a positive spot from being like, oh, yeah, this is actually going better than I thought, I think that carries you further. Mm. Having people to, like, give you food and stuff and have them kind of on it beforehand to, like, push it on you a bit. Again, it's kind of one of those efforts that, like, for me anyway, it was you were going hard enough that you didn't have that, like, feeling you get on a normal long ride where you're like, oh, yeah, I'm hungry now. Um, I didn't have that because mm. it was kind of like you're doing a hill hard enough and then descending and then you're back into it that it was easy to get behind on that if you didn't have someone to tell you to. Like if you're going to have people to ride with you, I think it would yeah. be really nice to use them in the back end to kind mm. of like bring in and break it up, break the monotony of it because I think that's honestly like that's the thing that breaks you. Going about it in a way that's like, more relaxed you're gonna have a much better time and involving people definitely all right well then lastly mate after it was all over and like now the dust has settled like you said you know it was that time you got with your dad what was what was anything else that you really took away from the experience yeah i think like it's it was surprisingly difficult mentally you know uh like i thought it was going to be hard because it's monotonous it, it was definitely one of the more difficult mental efforts I've done, which was that surprised mm. me considering really? it wasn't wow. so long. I can't remember how long it took. It was like seven or eight hours or something, but it's nothing like insane. But for me, it was one of the things that like, it kind of seared in my head a bit, which I didn't think it was going to. And the best bit was actually of the whole thing was it was Contador who broke my record. I think it, I can't remember how it was close though. And I just knew like and it was still fresh in my head at that point how hard that last hour was and i just knew he would have been fighting every lap and i was just like yes <laughs> yes there was one hour where like i had condor on the ropes you know even though he was retired and like whatever i, was like, I don't care i was just like yes that's like so sick all right well here we are boys this is it's six six fifteen a.m i think i'd plan to get going sometime between 6 and 6 30 so things are on track i've got my big support crew here the old man was a oh it's 559 actually we're ahead of time was yep well very well done mitch we've got away right on time this morning and um yeah and it's gonna looks like a good day coming up and not super cold here at the moment considering we're on top of mount masson 
So um, I think it's going to be a successful day, Mitch. And as a little surprise, we've actually got another man who's decided to take on Everest thing today. He's turned up here right on, on Mount Masson, the infamous Mount Masson. Cam, welcome. Thanks, mate. Thought I'd uh, just tag along. Saw your uh, Insta post earlier in the week and thought, shit, it's a uh, too good an opportunity to pass up. So why not uh, sword myself for 12 hours up and down a hill? And you've, you've got a plan or what's the idea? Have you done something like this before? Uh, no, I haven't done anything like this before. Rough plan, just, uh, I don't know, try and pace myself somewhat sensibly and see how we go. You think you'll get through it? I hope so. hope so. All right, well, you've got a good setup here. You're a one-man band, but we're going to be in it together. So let's get this thing cracking, I reckon. Well, the bottom of the second lap. So I've tested the climb once. And uh, yeah, I guess it's starting to dawn on me. It's gonna be <laughs> pretty hard up here. It's steep. Uh, I know this is supposed to be a good thing, but I was already struggling lap one. My mate, Cam, who came out to do an Everesting himself, I thought, I saw him ahead on the first lap I left a bit before him. I thought, cheeky bugger, he's doing a different segment. But actually, as I got to the top of the climb, I saw him there, and I found out the poor, poor guy hit a kangaroo on his way down, on his first lap. He's got skin off everywhere. So, I don't know if he's gonna continue. Already, everything takes its toll already on the first person, lap one. All right, here we are, bottom of the third. And I got Cam with me, he's back on track, mate. You ought to tell me what happened. Mate, just tucking down the hill, roll down for the start. Saw a bunch of roos come across the road. All good, got on the brakes, dodged the first three. Didn't see the fourth one coming. Pinned him at probably 50k an hour. Went down. Lost a fair bit of bark. All good, fresh kid on. Here we go. So, we've got a car coming behind us. I guess my question is, what does that mean for everything now? Are you you're going to continue on, you're going to give it a go, you're just going to use this as a training session? Yeah, I'm just going to give it a crack, look, kind of no expectations now. Uh, see how the body feels, pretty stiff at the moment. Cracked my helmet, so uh, thanks for your spare, Mitch. So uh, look, just take it easy, see how it go. I don't know, it's all an experiment. Right, I'm happy to have you out here, we're just about to crank into the steep part. It's all steep up here. Alright, all right, here we are. Bottom of the 12th lap, I think. Um, 2,400 metres done. Yeah, I guess I'm riding into it a bit. I'm getting sort of used to the lap and it's sort of just ticking away. Um, 
how big it is is starting to dawn on me because just the time that it takes you start breaking it down in your head oh yeah okay you know 1500 meters is going to take me two hours so I think the sheer time is the overwhelming thing at the moment the fatigue hasn't set in um it's raining now too few people out here so far it's been good sometimes a bit too fast but it ticks the laps off all right here we go a few people have been asking me out here just well the few people have been riding with me what I'm doing for fueling um, I've got this scratch super fuel in the bottles I figured I need to sort of just keep ticking it over without noticing because Sometimes eating on a climb's not great. I didn't bring any gels out, just because I didn't have any. Um, and the rest of the time I'm sort of just having, like I've got some ham sandwiches this morning, and then got some Snickers for later on. I might stop at the pub, get a bowl of chips. So pretty, pretty normal stuff, and the super fuel in the bottles to keep it ticking. I've just caught Cam. We separated probably for about seven, eight laps now, which is probably necessary in a way, mate. How you traveling? Ticking along. We're about, uh, I'm about 3,300 meters into it. So nice to kind of have a third of it under the belt, but well aware the, uh, the next two thirds are going to be pretty spicy. <laughs> That's an understatement. It's, uh, Gonna be busier on the mountain here, for good and for bad. Bit more of a distraction. We've got our little friend down the bottom there, little magpie, don't we? A couple of them, mate. It's uh, at least they're not hitting me. The first lap they nailed, they nailed your helmet actually, but <laughs> it's kind of nice again. It's just something to break it up, dodge the magpies, have a bit of a laugh. Had a duck try and snap at me just before as well, so it's good to know pretty much every animal out here is trying to kill me. Oh, we're just going past the pub. I can see the fire's on. That's a good sign. Mate, tell me one thing that I've experienced so far is that sort of the first five, six laps actually was hurting a bit. And then probably for the last 10, I've settled into a bit of a nice rhythm where it's just sort of getting it done. How have you felt? Yeah, very similar, mate. I think the first laps were probably pretty, uh, pretty motivated. Yeah. Hitting a few waddies up those hills. But I think, uh, yeah, probably found something that's a bit more sustainable given how many more caves we've got to go. All right, steep bit coming up. Let's get back into it. Test. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Mitch, it's 11.30 a.m. Sunday, and you're doing your Everesting. I got all sorts of questions for you. First off, where are you at, and how are you feeling? I'm actually doing better than I thought, but it's dawned on me. I think I said to myself, I'll try and finish before it gets dark. Sun goes down at six, and I'm like, shit, I've still got six hours to go. And I thought <laughs> I was doing all right, but, I'm feeling good, like you sort of 
right into your rhythm. And I want to say the hill, it doesn't get worse yet. You know what to expect, but got 4,000 meters done. Wow. The thing that's cracking me is the kilometers. I've only done 100K. I've been out here for ages, five hours. And what's your pacing strategy? You're going by feel, by wattage, by time? I've got no power meter. My heart rate's jumping all over the place because of power lines, so I'm just doing it al natural. Just <laughs> when the hill gets too steep, slow down, but sometimes I feel good, so I get out of the seat and punch it over. I'll probably be regretting it later, but I'm trying to take all that out of it, just ride the hill. Well, I've showed up after a little 60k ride and uh, I'm already winded just trying to keep up with you. So, have you had much interaction, support, or understanding from the Everesting community about this? Quite a lot of people coming up. I'm really surprised, you know, just to ride with me and there's a guy just doing an Everesting today with me, which is surprising. But, um... Not many from the Everestring community, but I think just people are interested to find out what it is. I spoke with Andy and Lockie and their advice was, you know, good gradient, like steep gradient, and not too many turns, just cause like when I get tired later. And I'm thinking about it now, I do like it because you can break it down. Like I sort of get past this steep bit we're about to go up now and I almost call it a lap. I'm like, yeah, okay. That's done. Whereas if it was the whole way to the top, I'm sure there'd be a different psychology too, but I like it. I'm an effort recovery guy, so I can break it down. And has it started, uh, has your mind started wandering yet? And just thinking about the feeling of what some of those guys try to do it for speed kind of go through? I, I have no idea how they can do it that fast. Absolutely no idea. Like I'm not trying to go too quick today, but I don't have much more in me. I'm hours off. Well, you're going quick, cause I'm barely keeping up, winded, making you do all the talking. So you're not going slow. I don't know how they do it. Like, what's the record? It's under seven hours. Yeah. Under seven. Ronan McLaughlin has got it in. I should know this, but six something, it's it? like 640 or something crazy, yeah. I think he just averaged like 340 watts every lap and he's not a big guy. It's just insane, like we're not even quite halfway and we're a lap time just coming on six hours. And we have a beer to look forward to. What's the beer strategy? How, how are you feeling after, what, four beer, three beer? I reckon... Once we get to 5,000, the pub's gonna open, and then a beer every kilometer. That's what they call the death zone of Mount Everest. Yeah. All right, we're on the 25th lap, I think. We've done, I wanna say we, me, almost 5,500 climbing, joined by local mountain bike rider, and also general rider, electrician, actually. Joel Green, mate. Why'd you come out today to ride some laps with me when you could do something better? I think just, I felt sorry for you. I thought I'd just keep you company for a little bit. Usually going up and down the south side once or twice is enough. So I thought if someone's going to do it 40, was it 42 times? Then uh, I'd show my support. 
And we've also got on the back, Dom, Dominic Briscoe, on the gravel bike. <laughs> Don't training much nowadays. <laughs> what do you think of this idea of Everest thing? Uh, I think it's great. I'm glad you're here. I came out because I felt sorry for you too. But now I'm feeling sorry for myself. You're getting inspired to do one yourself? I'm going to have to get fit first. <laughs> Alright, let's crack on. Oh, I've had quite a lot of people ride with me today and I've got a bit of time on my own actually, which is probably what the doctor ordered. I'm feeling it. 6,600 metres. I'm not in the death zone yet, but ooh, I feel it. It's, it's coming. I need to take the speed back a bit. <laughs> oh, it's starting to really build on me and I'm not enjoying it as much as I was in the beginning. All right, we're up here at base camp. Apparently, we're, we're just into the death zone, apparently, but my head unit, this has got this head unit debacle. It's way out, but I don't want to believe it. And we're doing some mathematics up here. We're checking Strava. We've got fuel checking Strava, haven't you? What, what are you finding out? I'm getting it as uh, 224 meters of elevation for 2.89 kilometers of uh, distance travel between our two turnaround points. And I had it scheduled at 210. So ultimately that puts me in about two laps less. It seems very tempting. Almost three laps. I was going to do 43 laps. Seems very tempting. What should we do? Err on the side of caution, mate. We don't want to get to the end and find we think we're finished and you've only done 8,802 metres of climb. We'll go, we'll go double check on the start. Yeah, we'll uh, do some more checking. Let's do some more checking. All right. All right, would you believe it? It's the last lap. And I'm being guided in by the Tees twins, local mountain goats, you could call them. Boys, how's it been? You've done a few laps early, had a whole lunch at the pub, beers, and we're still going. How, you, how have you found it? Yeah, I've been cherry picking a beer. I don't know how Mitch has done the full day, but kudos to him, pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty decent ride. Not everyone can ride up Everest, so yeah. Yeah, super good day. Inspired you to come out and do it yourself? Yeah, I'd like to do it one day, yeah. Yeah, this definitely has. Yeah, I love to go out. You people in the pub might go out doing Everest now. Bit inspired. Yeah. It's good. Lots of beer was drunk. Look, my own thoughts about it, far out. It's just, it's big. It's mental, obviously it's physical, but uh, yeah, just the same road and the same pinch points plays on your mind. I'm certainly happy the way I did it. You know, look, not that I was going to set the world on fire with any kind of record, but the way I did it today suited me because, you know, having people here is what I'm about. Chatting and having a beer and absorbing the atmosphere and trying to make this hellish thing as fun as I could. Anyway, look, it's not over yet. We're at the bottom of the last lap. 8,700 meters. Let's get it done. Thanks, boys. Cheers.
All right, Phil, it's all over, mate. You being the major support out here with the old man, how was the day from your from off the off the bike? Uh, pretty entertaining, you know, mate. Your own uh, man has plenty of yarns to tell. It was uh, it was pretty damn good, and obviously just seeing you do this, mate, accomplish something that you know I know you've spoken about listening to the pod and one thing and another. It's just awesome, really, really good to see. Just for a, a cycling tragic like myself. That's the thing. That's why I wanted to do it. Look, I know a lot of people have done bigger things than these, faster things, but it's about sort of going. Hey, it's a pretty hard challenge just to do anyway. Is it something that you being on the sidelines go, okay, maybe I could do this, or maybe I'd want to do this, or you're just like, nah, this just looks horrible. Uh, at the moment, it looks fairly horrible. Uh, after you've had a couple of pints and uh, you know you start talking it up, I'm pretty sure uh, it may be something I uh, I look at in the future. But hell, I need to get a lot fitter. Mate, thanks very much for your support today. It was awesome. No worries at all, mate. Thanks very much. <laughs> we're we're calming down a bit now. We're back at the pub. Good news is. The Life in the Peloton beer has sold out. Well, it's not necessarily great news for me, but I've drunk a lot of Life in the Peloton beer. We're here with Phil and Jane. They're up on the side of the hill today. The old man just finishing his beer. Dad, good to be back in the pub. Mate, I've been looking forward to it all day. And as, as, as the sun set and the boys are going past from the pub on their bikes, we were getting thirsty and thirsty, weren't we, Phil? But we're here at last. And what a great day. Jane... How did you let Phil just stand on the side of the mountain all day today? Phil froths this stuff. <laughs> He's a fanboy. We're not talking about beer either, are we? <laughs> Phil, you're feeling a bit warmer now and ready to go home, get some dinner. It's been a great day once again. Thanks for ca- coming out there. No worries. Thanks for uh, coming to our little town and making it famous, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll have to get Life in the Peloton back on tap here, I think. Definitely. It's no good the place has run out. What am I going to drink tomorrow night? I have to come around to our place. Well, guys, there we have it. I got there in the end and Everesting done. Will that be the one and only? Well, I think at this point, yes. It was a bit of a controversy out there. I really wanted to get there, get it done. And I was so happy. Mentally, I'd set myself for 42. And actually, in the end, it was 40. What an experience, actually. What an experience learning about this cool challenge. And really, the whole idea of this thing for me was to sort of show everyone it doesn't have to be fast. It doesn't have to be record-breaking. It's just a tough challenge to go and do. Make it your own. Choose your own mountain. Choose your own hill. Get some friends to come along. Drink a beer or two like I did. Whatever floats your boat go out and do it. It's a pretty cool challenge. It's pretty hard too. I'm not going to undersell that because it is a hard challenge still to do. Big thanks goes out to Annie Van Bergen and Lockie for having a chat to me on this. Of course, Will at Red Bricks Media for putting this episode together for you guys. And of course, the Life in the Peloton team, Megan Spurlow. Guys, thanks very much for listening to this. We've got a couple of episodes left this season, so hang in for them. Next week, I'll have a talking look for you. And until then, guys, take it easy. Cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.